The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Right, so if you say it was to make America stronger, you know, the goal of America is to make America stronger, or it's to uh, uphold international norms, you look back and you say, okay, Iraq clearly didn't do that. Now that, you know, that's that's a presumption that's, you know, rebuttable if you go back to the history and you see, oh, well, they had a careful plan and that would lead to actually the U.S., you know, having greater power or strength due to Iraq. You know, they, they would have, they had a plan to seize the oil or something, you know, or, or to do something else, but it just it didn't work. And then you look, but then you look at the history and then it, you know, it, it's, it only hurts more the theory of grand strategy. I mean, the, the, the lack of thought that was put into Iraq and Afghanistan at the very beginning and the key decisions, I mean, is shocking. I'm Jack Goldsmith, and this is the Lawfare Podcast of June 7, 2022. What, if any, theory of international relations best explains U.S. foreign policy outcomes? Why, for example, did President Biden withdraw American forces from Afghanistan, re-engage Iran on the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, and impose harsher-than-expected sanctions on Russia, and gave more-than-expected support to Ukraine following the Russian invasion? I sat down with Richard Hanania, the president of the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology, whose new book, Public Choice Theory and the Illusion of Grand Strategy seeks to provide answers to these types of questions. We discussed Hanania's view that academic theories about American grand strategy cannot explain important U.S. foreign policy outcomes, and his argument that these outcomes are better explained by public choice theory, and especially by the dominant influences on the presidency of government contractors, the national security bureaucracy, and foreign governments. We also discussed whether realist complaints about these influences are consistent with realist premises about how to discern the national interest and the value, if any, of international relations theorizing. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 7, Public Choice Theory and American Foreign Policy. Richard, your book is called Public Choice Theory and the Illusion of Grand Strategy, How Generals, Weapons Manufacturers, and Foreign Governments Shape American Foreign Policy. And that's a pretty accurate description of the thesis of the book. I would put it this way. You think that international relations grand strategy theories don't do a good job of explaining U.S. foreign policy outcomes. You think public choice theory, which is basically um, an economics-based theory of group influence on government decisions, does a better job of explaining foreign policy outcomes. And in particular, you focus on three groups as having especially powerful influence, government contractors, the national security bureaucracy, 
and foreign governments. Is that a fair summary? And if not, tell me what I got wrong. No, that, that, that's, that's pretty much a perfect summary of the book. Okay. Uh, so let's unpack this. Talk to us about what grand strategy is. What, what is that? It, it's a term in the IR literature. Tell us what that is and tell us what the U.S. grand strategy is said to be. Uh, so grand strategy is the idea that a, a state is putting together its uh, various forms of power, uh, its various forms of ways of influencing the world, that's diplomatic, uh, military power, economic power, uh, towards certain ends. And it doesn't say, you know, the theory that there's a grand strategy doesn't say about what that strategy is. It could be ideological. Uh, it could be, you know, often it's thought to be something having to do with protecting national security or advancing the, uh, you know, economic or material interests of the of the country. It doesn't necessarily have to be that, although that's the way it's um, it's often thought of um, in, in the literature. You know, that, that's uh, that's that's the idea. And then the American grad strategy, I mean, it's it's basically, this is sort of the, you know, whenever you're reading uh, analysis of foreign policy, it's, it's not just you're reading uh, professors of international relations. When you're reading like a New York Times article that is a news analysis or something in foreign policy or a report by a think tank, it's sort of, the, you know, the water in which, uh, you know, we're fish swimming in the water. This is sort of the assumption there. And then the American, the specifics of American grand strategy, I mean, there's generally two, you know, there, there, people have all kinds of ideas of what causes foreign policy. But I think, you know, people who are the most prominent individuals and most influential people writing on the subject or thinking about, about the subject. Uh, there's uh, liberal internationalism, the idea that the U.S. is uh, defending some kind of international norms. You know, it's uh, advancing uh, international law. Um, and then there's the idea of uh, primacy, which is the idea that the United States basically just wants power to have power to be able to maintain its influence in the world um, in order to achieve its own interests. And that means things like... Uh, you know, heading off any potential challengers, any potential rival superpower, and you know, and otherwise dealing with you know threats that may may emerge on sort of the outskirts of uh, you know ungoverned spaces, things things like that. So these these are basically the, the the grand strategy is sort of the framework, and then these are specifics to to what people generally think of as American grand strategy. So let me question you about that. I mean, these are as you say, these you're not inventing these categories; you're taking them from the literature. More or less. I mean, there, as you say, there are different accounts for what the ends the United States pursues. And most of the accounts include the two things you mentioned, military primacy and liberal internationalism. Military primacy seems kind of obvious, but I'm, I'm curious about liberal internationalism. It doesn't seem, it seems obviously not to be, at least as you, as you just described it as a kind of rule, rule-based international order, complying with international law. It doesn't, it seems obviously not to be a kind of party transcendent end that the United States pursues. I mean, you, the first footnote of the book, or at least in the first chapter, you have a footnote that maybe Trump, you, you, you seem to suggest by a citation to, I think, Barry Posen's piece, that maybe Trump wasn't committed to liberal internationalism, but I don't think George W. Bush was either. He violated lots of international laws. He was roundly accused of being hostile to international law and institutions. He withdrew from a lot of international institutions. So can you just zero in on that stated end and tell us, uh, you know, is it really, is there really a consensus in, I, in the IR literature that that is one of the aims of U.S. foreign policy? Yeah, I mean, there's different ways to sort of understand this idea of liberal norms. So in a certain way, yeah, the Bush administration 
was not like the Biden and Biden administration. Everything it does, it justifies, you know, we're the leaders of the free world, international international norms, uh, rules-based international order. You know, that's that's sort of one of their favorite uh, phrases. Uh, the Bush administration, you know, was much more willing, you know, as people criticize them for, to, to do things unilaterally, to sometimes violate international law, you know, most obvious case being uh, the war in Iraq. Yeah, that's that, that's true. But I think, you know, even the Bush administration, I mean, it was, it was trying to, you know, enforce some kind of liberal order. I mean, maybe it's not a cooperative one, but it's sort of, it's, you know, the, the entire Bush doctrine that uh, came about, you know, in 2003, 2004, and to some extent guided the administration was about democratization. I mean, this became the entire justification for the Iraq war. So there was something about liberal norms. It wasn't about, you know, the U, maybe they didn't have too much respect for the UN or the European, you know, the EU, you know, court of uh, human rights. Maybe like they didn't care about that stuff or the opinion of, you know, uh, international NGOs. Um, but there was, you know, this this kind of, uh, you know, my argument is basically these aren't <laughs> these aren't really the, you know, the grand strategies. This isn't right. like, you know, the best way to understand it. But I would say the Bush administration justification, there was something based in uh, uh, something like liberal international norms. The Trump administration, I mean, you know, they were, you know, holding hands with the Saudis. And at that point, you know, they weren't even pretending to, to, to care. But I do think I do think the Bush administration, there are a lot of continu- continuities with the with the Democratic administrations that came before and after. So just to pick up on something you said, and to be clear, this is not, you're not claiming that this is what drives U.S. foreign policy, but I'm just trying to understand what the conventional wisdom is. It just seems to me, and this is the last I'll say on it, and you can respond if you want. It seems to me that thinking about it as the rules-based international order is just so obviously wrong. I mean, maybe it's democratization. Maybe it's promoting U.S., the U.S. understanding of rules and and international trade and and market-based stuff. But it just it just seems to me at, at the broad level that you describe some of the literature describing it, it seems so obviously wrong that I'm surprised that that's the, that's the claim in the literature. Let me be clear. So, so obviously wrong as a description of U.S. foreign policy that transcends administrations. Yeah, I don't you know, I, I don't know if I you know, I, I do have some, you know, Quotes in there from like people like uh, I think people like uh, John I I can bury you know you say it's uh, it's obvious that that's not what the U.S. is doing I mean but you know the Biden administration can't stop talking about it so they must think it's you know they either believe it or they must think it's at least convincing to some people it's uh you know it's probably not the you've read a lot of the more sophisticated international relations uh, theorists can can look at American foreign policy and say you know that's clearly not what we're doing but you know somebody some important people do apparently believe what we're doing so you know it has to be uh, you know the argument has to be addressed. No, I agree. I, my point is not that I do think the Biden administration thinks that's what they're doing to some level. And I do think that's what they say. And same with Obama. But I just, I don't think it was true of the last two Republican administrations. That's my only point. I don't I think it was obviously not true, but we, we can yeah. leave that. It's not really relevant to your claim. Or it's not dispositive of your claim. So that, and, and just to make sure I understand the target of the book is, are these IR theorists. I mean, you're basically claiming your theory beats their theory. Is that is that right? Yeah, that's right. But I also I think the IR theorists, I think their framework is the general, you know, is the general understanding. You'll read, you know, like a like just a news story about American foreign policy, you know, and then they'll say things like you know, the, for example, they'll talk about the U.S. strategy towards China, and they, you know, they'll tell a very neat story where in the 1990s the U.S. had this ideology. You know, the ideology doesn't have to be consistent over time, but the idea was there was a strategy. The U.S. had a belief that uh, China was going to become uh, liberalized and it was going to uh, become democratic.
traffic and we engagement. And now, you know, a bunch of stuff happened. And now we decided that that wasn't the best approach. Now we've got to get tough with China. So when you, when you tell that story, it's not like sophisticated in like an IR theorist sense, but there is a sense of like, there's a decision maker somewhere uh, with actual long-term goals, trying to get something out of the US-China relationship. And some people in the government, I think are, are, are doing that, but I, I don't think that's necessarily the best understanding of, uh, of what, what's happened, say, in the relationship with China or war on terror or like all these other, you know, foreign policy questions. So you basically just said it was not, it's not just academics. It's basically the elite journalistic culture and, and the way foreign policy gets discussed in public. But do you think that the, the people in the government say or think they're operating on this theory? I guess, I guess the, the democratic administrations, I guess they do uh, on both points. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I, um, you know, I, um, I don't have as much experience with uh, people in government as I do with uh, academics or academic literature, even, you know, reading uh, journalistic accounts or think, t- or think tank reports on, on what's going on. Um, you know, more generally is a sort of a question of human nature. I think people tend to believe, you know, they tend to convince themselves of the things that they, uh, they need to believe or want to believe for uh, a self-interested interested reasons. Uh, you know, Robert Trivers, uh, evolutionary theory here is, you know, something that's had a major influence on my thinking. So I tend to believe that as a general matter, government officials, like most people convince themselves of, of certain things. Now it's possible that, you know, in some cases, you know, it's, it's possible that they don't. Um, and if, you know, if they don't, if that's not the dominant understanding within government, it's still, you know, worth going to everyone else and saying, Hey, this is really not what they're doing. You know, one of my arguments in my book is actually this, this is uh, sort of flattering to uh, this is self this is a sort of a self-flattering portrait of American foreign policy so uh, people in government would sort of you know have an interest whether it's whether it's you know a conscious you know sort of uh, misleading the public or not um, they would have a uh, an interest in sort of believing this so I, I wouldn't be surprised if um, you know I wouldn't be surprised actually either way but yeah the argument doesn't depend on you know whether actually people within government believe the uh, the story of grand strategy Okay, so before we get to to your public choice account, can you just tell us, you know, briefly why you find IR grand strategy theories lacking in terms of explaining U.S. foreign policy outcomes? There are lots of examples in the book. Can you just give us a few? Uh, sure. So, I mean, I, you know, I came at this, I, I was interested in foreign affairs for a long time before I went to graduate school and, you know, studied it as an ac- academic discipline. And, you know, I thought a lot of the things they were doing in American foreign policy really didn't make sense. I mean, my, uh, my initial uh, experience in paying attention to uh, uh, politics and foreign affairs was really the war on, on terror. And, you know, the, the, con- the connections between, for example, why we said we were going into Iraq and Afghanistan and how those wars, you know, unfolded was just sort of so, you know, there was such a discrepancy there. And when I went back, I read the history. I mean, it was even, it was even, there was even a bigger discrepancy than I, than I thought. So, I mean, you will, this is an example of people using sort of the grand strategy framework. They'll say, you know, this is smart people, people in academia or people in uh, journalism will tell the story. The neoconservatives in the Bush administration wanted to democratize Iraq because they had some kind of, you know, uh, ideology that this was going to change the Middle East. I mean, there was a, there's but entire books uh, written on sort of, you know, what, what, uh, the ideology was driving this. And then you go back and you look at the history and it doesn't appear that anybody was thinking in those terms. I mean, maybe somebody within the administration there could, could point to one or one or two people. Uh, but no, I mean, they were basically thinking in terms of, you know, uh, 
going after Saddam Hussein. Um, they were thinking, you know, they were thinking in terms of sort of uh, preventing more terrorist attacks. And, you know, it's, it's sort of in some ways, it's sort of hard to know what, the, what they were thinking. But then the, it's very clear that the idea of the Bush doctrine emerges in the aftermath of the um, inability to find weapons of mass destruction. So you can do this with text analysis. Um, Doug Fife, uh, who was in the administration, who didn't like the, you know, this sort of pivot to this democratization idea. Um, he talks about this in his memoirs and he, you know, just analyzes Bush's speeches and other you know, political scientists have done this too. And so you have this, you know, you have the Bush doctrine, right? And then people come to believe that's sort of, you know, why the, you know, the whole reason we were in, in Iraq. Um, the Afghanistan war is another one. I mean, we go in there and then the, we go in there, we, uh, you know, for obvious reasons after September 11th. And then you um, go back and you read the history of like how we decided to, you know, build a democracy around uh, Karzai. I mean, it, it got zero attention. I mean, this is from the accounts uh, from the top of the administration. I mean, this is the accounts of the memoirs, people like Azami Khalilzad, who say, you know, there was basically no attention at the top of the government. There's no evidence that, you know, Bush or Cheney were, were thinking about it. I mean, but then they've had, they have this Bush doctrine, thing, this thing, which they adopted because of uh, the failure to find WMDs in Iraq. And this sort of, you know, Afghanistan just drags along. There's no like good opportunity to leave. And so you just sort of, you know, you just, you just stay. And then that becomes about democracy. And then, you know, that, that, that goes on for, that goes on for another uh, 15 years at that point. Uh, so it was the war on terror, I think was a big one. I think it's easier to understand it just sort of a, uh, a series of improvisations depending on, you know, political interests and uh, public opinion. And, you know, sometimes ideology, somebody grabs sort of the, uh, they grab the, the, it's like a giant, you know, the government's like a giant ship and somebody can grab the wheel and like, you know, turn it for a little direction. So maybe the neoconservatives had their little, uh, you know, they had their, their moment in the sun, but it wasn't necessarily that that wasn't necessarily driving American foreign policy, you know, for over the long, long term. Can I, before you go on another example, can I just ask one question about that? Isn't the claim that the two supposed motivators of U.S. action, preserving liberal hegemony or, or liberal internationalism and uh, maintaining military primacy, isn't the, isn't the claim ultimately that those don't explain what happened because these were disastrous wars, especially in Iraq, and they certainly, uh, the Iraq war certainly didn't uphold liberal internationalism? Is that the claim? Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, I think, decent evidence for the claim, right? So if you say it was to make America stronger, you know, the goal of America is to make America stronger, or it's to uh, uphold international norms, you look back and you say, okay, Iraq clearly didn't do that. Now that, you know, that's, that's a presumption that's, you know, rebuttable, if you go back to the history, and you see, oh, well, they had a careful plan. And that would lead to actually the U.S., you know, having greater power or strength due to Iraq. You know, they, they would have they had a plan to seize the oil or something, you know, or, or to do something else. But it just it didn't work. And then you look but then you look at the history and then, it you know, it, it's it only hurts more the theory of grand strategy. I mean, the, the the lack of thought that was put into Iraq and Afghanistan at the very beginning and the key decisions. I mean, it's shocking. I, I go through it in the book. Um, and this is really I mean, this is such a motivating example because these were the things that <laughs> this was the foreign policy question. You know, in the in the early two thousands, that the government was paying the most attention to. So, if grand strategy is not there, and sort of a you know a, trying to uphold it either in uphold international norms or uh, advance American power, if you don't see it there, I mean, it's going to be probably very hard to see it anywhere. Uh, yeah, yeah, exa exactly. I mean, I think that's that's a good way to look at it. Like, okay, does this stuff advance American interests? Okay, and then if you say no, then well, did they have a good reason to think that? And in this case, they most certainly, I think, did not. But but even you know many of the grand theorists that you're criticizing in the book would have agreed with you. We agreed with you. Mearsheimer and Walt were famously 
opposed, for example, to the intervention in Iraq, precisely on the grounds that it wouldn't it wouldn't serve the military primacy interest and it would have the opposite impact. So I don't think that's inconsistent with your theory, but what do you what do you make of that? Yeah, I mean it's a very I think this is a critique of Mersheimer and and Walt that I think is um that I think is uh, fair in the sense that they um you know they have what I think is supposed to be a descriptive theory and you know Mersheimer I mean he you know they explicitly they explicitly you know say this but it all, all they spend most of their um at least their uh public work is based on influencing American foreign policy, you know, so, so it's, uh, you know, but then you listen to Mersheimer too, at the same time, he also does have this sort of deterministic streak too. So, you know, I've seen him, uh, he's written that the U.S. will in the end defend Taiwan, uh, just because sort of, you know, the laws of, you know, the sort of his, uh, his framework of uh, understanding international relations says that China is, you know, the great threat to the U.S. Um, it's the only one that objectively can have as much power and potentially threaten it. So the U.S. in the end will confront China. You know, and it will and it will uh, fight Taiwan. But then it's like you know, if you look back at the war on terror, you know, Mersheimer will acknowledge the U.S. did not act in accordance with uh, the theories of realism. So the question is, like, why now that you know that the, the, we're going to turn attention to the China question, why won't these same pathologies manifest themselves? And you know, he might have an answer, something to do with you know, maybe having uh, an actual hegemonic threat, you know, potential he- uh, hegemonic threat. You know, that could potentially you know focus the mind and focus the country in a way that something like the war on terror didn't. But I mean, you know, the China, the rise of China has been foreseeable for. A very long time. So if he thinks, you know, we've been maybe not taking China seriously enough all the all this time, like you know, I don't know exactly what the point is where we start doing doing so by some, you know, sort of just by some sort of natural law or some kind of, you know, just inherent force of the the power relationship between the uh the two countries. Uh so yeah, I, th- I think you're I think you're right. I think you're right that, you know, realism is, you know, the at least the realists who are um making, you know, public arguments about this, I think there is a bit of a a contradiction there. And they are, you know, they do, like you said, they do acknowledge that the U.S. often doesn't act, you know, in accordance with realist theories. And it's, it's, uh, I I myself, I'm sort of puzzled in in how they reconcile this. So I'll come back to, I want to come back to Mearsheimer and Walt after we talk about public choice theory, but just give us one or two more examples, if if you could. The I, you know, I think the I don't talk about it in, in the book much. Maybe I, I should have because uh, you know the I think the events have gotten um, you know I think the recent events with Russia and Ukraine um, are in a, in a way very you know consistent with uh, with the theory I, I I put forth. So I mean the U S is um, you know the U S is basically expanding NATO. It's not really you know thinking about why. I mean it's not really you know there's there's really no debate about it. I mean the you know George Kennan and these other people are saying it's going to you know lead lead to some, lead to something bad. You know and, and even like you know you could say that there was a theory you know in the nineteen ninety you could say in the nineteen nineties you know this maybe you know they were trying to check Russian power or they were trying to go after Russia. You know, there's no really, you know, there's no uh, real strong evidence from that at the time. It seems like the NATO expansion in the 1990s was done with little thought. There was just some vague understanding that, uh, you know, democracy is good and capitalism is good and bringing these countries, you know, into, into the fold, you know, is, is, is a good thing. I mean, very little consideration for American security interests or how, you know, bringing Hungary, uh, Czech Republic and Poland on uh, these other countries necessarily defend the United States. And and then um, you know the U the U S uh, Maidan happens the the situation in Ukraine happens and it's it's not clear that you know at any point there was a decision 
you know, to, to try to bring uh, Ukraine into this stuff. It just sort of, you know, it's sort of, there's, a, there's the, the, NG, there's the NGOs that they're, the, uh, they're working. There's people on the uh, Russia desk who have their own, you know, sort of ideas of uh, people in the state department and the federal bureaucracy uh, who have their own ideas about the way uh, us policy towards Russia works. And they're, and they're sort of, they're, they're sort of at odds with, Trump, who has a very sort of different idea of NATO and what the U.S. should be doing in Eastern Europe. Um, and then, you know, we end up in a situation, I think, I think the, the politics sort of gets ahead of itself because, the, you know, the U.S. gets closer to Russia. The U.S. feels like it cannot back down at that, at that point because, you know, we have these commitments. I mean, nobody would probably think about Estonia or Latvia any more than we think about Georgia. But Georgia, you know, the commitment is there for the Baltic countries. It's not there for Georgia. Uh, so therefore, you know, I think we, we, I think we sort of stumbled into something here, even though I think if, you know, if the U.S., I, you know, even, even though I think the U.S. could have, you know, come potentially uh, come to some kind of agreement on NATO expansion and the, you know, the Russian, uh, the Russian security concerns, it was probably, you know, too late by early 2022. And then the, you know, another one, I think the rise of China is just like a very, you know, a very important one. You know, the idea that the U.S., trading with China, like the idea that everyone believed that the U.S. would trade with China, therefore China would become democratic. I mean, it was, you know, like a rhetorical point. I don't know, you know, it's hard to see why people would have thought that. And it's hard to actually see like other examples of that kind of thinking in American foreign policy, because we have a sanctions regime um, that basically has the opposite idea that you're going to pressure countries, um, that you're going to cut them off from the international system, and that somehow will induce better behavior. Well, when it came to China, uh, we took the opposite strategy. And I think it's better explained by the fact that, you know, there was the most massive lot, you know, somebody called it the ma- most massive lobbying campaign, you know, in the history of American big business to, br- to bring China into the WTO just to open up China. And, you know, the, the U.S. Uh, did do that. Um, and then, you know, everything else that happened with China, you know, it becoming more powerful, it's starting to push its weight around. I mean, all of that was completely foreseeable once, you know, once this uh, once this country started growing economically. And now we're turning, you know, we're turning toward a more confrontational, you know, the, a confrontational approach to China. I do think, you know, in the the, the Trump, and, you, know, so the, you know, this grand strategy thing, whether it exists or not, it, it's, it's sort of on a spectrum. I mean, some things look like nothing like a grand strategy and some things do look like a grand strategy. So I think the war on terror is an extreme case of something that is not a grand strategy. Something like sanctions towards Cuba or, or Venezuela, you know, there seems to be very little, you know, stra- uh, strategy here, like why, you know, the sanctions, it seems to be domestic, especially the case of Cuba, for example, you know, a lot of domestic politics. I think that the, the, the China one, you know, I think, you know, I think we're more, you know, the Trump administration in particular, they uh, they were more inclined towards the uh, towards the grand strategy sort of end of things. I mean, particularly the, well, you know, what they, they've gone after uh, Huawei, the U.S. trying to sort of uh, build alliance, but build alliances in, in the region. You know, they're, they're sort of, uh, uh, you have a lot of the, um, the publicization of uh, sort of a Chinese um, uh, atrocities, Chinese human rights violations. Uh, so that's another one. I mean, so I think we are shifting maybe towards something resembling a, a grand strategy towards China. The Soviet, you know, the Soviet Union, the U.S. At least in the early days of the Cold War, I mean, th- there was, you know, I think something something resembling a, uh, a a strategy. I don't think it's been, you know, the the way we've dealt with China up until this point. And maybe I guess maybe I just answered my question about Mersheimer because what I'm saying I think does <laughs> does he, he, you know he says he, grand strategy is more useful in thinking about great powers relating to other great powers and you know maybe it's not in everything else so maybe maybe me and him are not as, as far apart as i uh, as i would have thought yeah i'm going to come back to that in a second so so most of our listeners will understand what public choice theory is but could you just run through your account as quickly as you can and, and with regard to the three groups that you think are most dominant and explain you know how what you think the drivers of u.s foreign policy are and then maybe 
take one of your examples, China or Ukraine, and explain how you think your theory explains U.S. foreign policy behavior better there? Uh, sure. So, you know, public choice theory is basically you're taking the tools of economics and you're using it to understand uh, politics. And the, you know, the tools of economics starts with the idea that, you know, you could take, imagine there are rational, self-interested actors, and then you assume they're, you know, they're seeking their own interests. And then you sort of build, you take that and then you build a, a framework for understanding, uh, understanding politics or a policy area. You know, and one of the most important ideas in public choice theory is the idea that groups with concentrated interests uh, get their way over groups with diffuse interests. So if you have a, a tariff, you know, question about a tariff and not having a tariff benefits the cons every consumer, you know, a little bit. But uh, putting putting the tariff on to some goods coming into the country really helps a domestic producer. Uh, the domestic pro the domestic producer is going to have an adv advantage. I think, you know, something like public choice theories, you know, some kind of political, maybe they don't call it that in like political science. I think that is our our sort of um, default understanding of politics. I mean, so when you think about healthcare or you think about immigration, I give those examples in the book, you know, people don't think in terms of grand strategy. We understand the healthcare system is a mess. We understand the immigration system is a mess. We understand it's a bunch of historically uh, contingent decisions based on, you know, politics and other things that have got it, gotten us to this point. Uh, so I think, I think, uh, you know, I think, uh, Foreign policy is best understood in that in that framework rather than the grand strategy framework. And so when you so I think when you what the first thing you do or one of the first things you do when you apply public choice theory to an area, you look for where are the groups with a with a concentrated in, interest in a in a policy outcome. Uh, so the you know so there are you know a few the the government itself is a um, is is an interest group. I mean so like you know the Pentagon, the NSA, the CIA. I mean the, there's plenty of examples of them uh, influencing America. Politics. Uh, I mean, often, often, you know, they they can have different opinions about what American foreign policy should be. One thing you should expect them to all agree on is, you know, not to ever cut the federal, you know, the the defense budget or the the the, the CIA budget or anything like that. You'd expect them to want to sort of at least maintain their own uh, power and influence. And that's you know that's what we do find that can you know that can uh, you know manifest itself in a more um, hawkish foreign policy. I think that has been the case in the last few administrations on Afghanistan in particular. You know the uh, Pentagon uh, was, mu you know, was much more inclined to want to stay than, you know, either any of the last three presidents. I mean, Obama, Trump, and uh, Biden. And, you know, there's, you know, you can, the, the histories of these are very interesting because they were, they, it wasn't like that, you know, the, the presidents were really, really, really in deep disagreement with, with the Pentagon, with the national security bureaucracy, but they were doing their own thing and they were trying to, you know, raise, basically raise the, the political costs of pulling back from the war, which, you know, to a certain extent, each of those presidents wanted to do, particularly Trump and then Biden, who who was finally able to do it successfully. Uh, so you have you have that you have them. Um, you also have the contractors, um, the weapons manufacturers. Um, some of these companies like uh, Raytheon and Lockheed. I mean, they're major corporations. They're they're almost you know all, pretty much all their. Uh, the revenue comes from government contracts. So this is, you know, this is the easiest, you know, you know, this is the going back to Eisenhower's idea of military, the military industrial complex. This is, you know, this is sort of maybe the prototypical case of what you'd expect a group to have an influence on policymaking from, you know, this is, this should be in public choice textbooks. I mean, something like Raytheon or Lockheed. Um, and, you know, these things, you know, these, these companies, you know, their, their, their methods of influence are very interesting because it's not like they just, you know, it's not like selling soap or it's not like selling, uh, deodorant or like getting a tariff like to you know to enact some to you know justify defense budgets you have to have you know some kind of uh philosophical or you know an argument or something in the national interest
interest. I mean, people pay attention to it. And you know what these what these groups do is they do some of they do you know sort of a old fashioned uh, normal politicking things like providing jobs and then having you know congressmen and representatives, senators uh, trying to influence them to act on their behalf. Uh, but then at the at the same time, you know, they do they do a lot of funding for sort of ideological work. So a lot of think tanks have uh, funding that comes from these uh, defense defense contractors. I mean, some things are you know just like you wouldn't have think like the project for a new American century in the nineteen nineties. Uh, uh, it was a Lockheed executive. I mean, who was who was uh, one of the initial uh, founders of that? The Lockheed, this uh, the guy named Bruce Jackson, was also um, influential in lobbying for a lot of the Eastern European countries uh, to get into the to ultimately they successfully got into NATO in the 1990s. So this is, you know, this is another important one. I mean, these two, these first two, the um, federal bureaucracy and the government contractors, there's a sort of a symbiotic relationship now because basically uh, all three and four star generals at this point, or virtually all of them, go work for some kind of defense contractors after they they retire. And you can see, you know, sort of the interest that's that's created here. And it's not, you know, it's also high level civilians um, have also, you know, landed uh, somewhere nicely, either, either, uh, corporate uh, gigs or or think tanks, often funded by uh, uh, corporate donors, or you know, in many cases, both. Uh, so you have, you know, the you could, so you have you have these. I mean, you could see you could you could. It's not hard to imagine how that would influence the behavior within government um, of either civilian or, or, or military leaders. Um, and then foreign governments, you know, it's also a story that's been told, Mersheimer and Walt, uh, written about the Isra- Israel lobby, um, Ukrainian, uh, you know, people talk about uh, Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian propaganda doing very well uh, in the last few months. I think in that case, you know, we, we, we wanted to buy into sort of what the Ukrainians were selling. So it was sort of, you know, a symbiotic relationship there. And it's, you know, it's not just foreign governments, you know, the, you know, sometimes it's just foreigners more generally. So the like, uh, Ahmed Shalabi, I mean, was an incredibly influential person in um, influencing the thought and of uh, the people who are more ideologically committed to invading Iraq before the Iraq war, who were sort of happened to be in the right place in the right time after uh, 9-11. And, you know, there, by some accounts, there was a plan to actually put Shalabi, you know, to, to make him, you know, the leader of Iraq and just get out from uh, Dick Cheney and these other and these other people in the administration, yeah. And another, I mean, the inter- another interesting thing about foreign governments is we have a you know we have a sanctions regime and we have a we have a practice of you know cutting off countries in diplomatic relations, which means we can you know some countries can influence the U.S. and some uh, factions within countries can influence the U.S. and others can't. So it's very interesting. I mean that Israel and the Saudis you know can can try to influence American foreign policy, while you know Iran doesn't even have direct diplomatic relations, much less, you know, funding think tanks or, you know, are their ambassadors speaking on, you know, the news or anything like that. I mean, there's none of that. So there's sort of a, you know, this is a, this is actually a very interesting and sort of unique aspect of American foreign policy where we, you know, open the gates to some foreign influence and then just completely shut off others. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. 
And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So let me just ask you, I'm, I'm surprised that you left out of your groups that have unusual influence, business and economic interests, because you just mentioned those as explaining the economic engagement with China going back to the 90s. And it seems to me that does a lot better explanation of our of our posture towards China than any of your explanations. I mean, it's not obvious to me why maybe the national security, why the national security bureaucracy or the defense contractors would be lobbying in favor of that outcome. It seems, as you just said, to be driven by business interests. And I mean, who were the governments lobbying for that? Was it the Chinese and what kind of influence did they have? So why did you leave economic interests out of your, out of the groups you gave that you elevated as important? And isn't that what really explains our, the economic engagement of China for the last 25 years, at least until the Trump administration? Yeah. So I, I, you know, I think that's, that's a good question. And I, and one reason, you know, what I say in the book is that I think that the business interests were influential in the case of China because there wasn't a direct immediate term place for the national security interest to have us just have a strong opinion. And so when you go to public choice theory, the idea is that a group is influential if they are a concentrated interest. So they can get a disproportionate uh, share of, you know, whatever, whatever uh, benefit is going to come from a, uh, uh, from a policy choice. So if you think about something like Raytheon or, or uh, Lockheed Martin, they, you know, everything to them, their entire bottom line, depends on the uh, the defense budget right uh, so you might and if you think about someone like Ahmad Chalabi um, or, or something you know who was a you know funded by the government itself actually got started uh, thanks to CIA funding you know he he wants to be uh, he wants to be the new president of Iraq so you could imagine or some, somebody like you know a country like Taiwan their existence depend you know to a, to a certain extent depends on American foreign policy so you have these interests that are you know just have a very deep interest now any particular corporation, can try to influence American foreign policy, um, but it's you know it's just one actor in, in in a very wide system. So business as itself is a very diffuse interest. Now sometimes the reward can be big enough, like opening up China is such a uniquely large reward, right? So you you might expect business to act there. And you know again in the 1990s they they weren't like facing head to head with the foreign policy establishment or any of these other uh, concentrated interests. Because yeah, the Taiwan lobby, but okay, American all of American business versus Taiwan, uh, you know. American business can can probably uh, gain the upper hand right there, but uh, I think that was a pretty unique case. I mean, I don't think we see a, a lot of cases like that. Something like opening up China, something like you know sanctions on Iran, for example. You know, some businesses have lobbied against sanctions uh, for Iran. Um, you know, and so you know some company could get a benefit from that. But even like if you're like Exxon Mobil or something, I mean, that's going to be a small portion of your total global business. And so I, you know, I would expect the uh, uh, the weapons manufacturers, the federal bureaucracy. Uh, I would I would expect them to have a bigger influence over over most things most of the time. By the way, speaking of sanctions against Iran, isn't that a counterexample to your claim that sanctions don't work? I mean, didn't the sanctions against Iran? You claim later in the book that as an explanation. Tell me if I get this wrong. You claim that a piece of evidence that the, these positive tenets of the grand of grand strategy are not driving U.S. foreign policy is that we keep using economic sanctions and they don't work. But isn't Iran a case that did work in the sense of, I mean, tell me I might be wrong, but didn't, wasn't it the pretty severe sanctions that brought them to the negotiating table that 
led to the joint comprehensive plan of action. Is that wrong? Uh, I, you know, I think that's an accurate interpretation of the, the course of events. You know, so, yeah, I mean, people who have looked at looked seriously at the literature, they find sanctions, you know, usually don't work. Sometimes they say never, or almost never. You know, I think almost, you know, I think that that would be going too far. I think in the case of uh, uh, the JCPOA and then, you know, the case of uh, Myanmar, the transition to the democracy that was, you know, aborted recently. I mean, I think that these are cases where uh, they, you know, at least arguable cases of, of sanctions working. So, you know, maybe you could say, well, that's, you know, rational, you know, that that, that shows that sanctions can be part of a, a you know, a, a rational foreign policy, something like grand strategy. But others, you know, there's uh, there's other kind of examples where it's not like they just don't work. You know, this is not the thing. It's like sometimes you can do things that work or they don't work. It's like they don't even try to make them work. So the, the Saddam sanctions in the 1990s. I mean, we have, you know, the doc, we have documents and uh, we have, we were able to capture documents and uh, the recordings actually of uh, what the, what the government in Iraq was talking about, you know, in the 1990s and the early 2000s. And they just, you know, they were just sitting there sort of scratching their heads like the Americans won't even talk to us. Um, how can we figure out, you know, how to get on? They cared a lot about the sanctions. The U.S. could have gotten something for sanctions relief. Um, but, you know, they, they did it. I mean, they didn't try. I mean, there was just there was just sort of no interest in in doing that. And so this is often, you know, this is often um, how it works, probably more often. More, probably that's how, how it works more often than the Iran case. And the Iran case is interesting from a grand strategy perspective, too, because, you know, the next administration came and, and ripped it off. So you had this yeah. sort of, you know, this, you had sanctions, you had this argument working, you had something looking like American grand strategy, but in the end, uh, you know, it was sort of short-term politics and ideology that determined the zigs and zags of Iran policy. So let's talk about short-term politics in terms of Ukraine. That's exactly what I wanted to ask about. So the question is, what explains the U.S. behavior vis-a-vis Ukraine, Ukraine since Russia invaded it? And you know, how does this fit with your account? And I, it seems obvious that the one of your triad, the weapons manufacturers, are going to be huge beneficiaries. So you can imagine them putting lots of pressure on the government to go in this route. And as you say, there's a tight connection between uh, former DOD officials who work in these uh, companies, so they may have a special influence there. But it's not obvious to me why the U.S. military would, would really be on board for ramping up you know, basically, I, what it seems to me, the surprisingly aggressive U.S. assistance to Ukraine. And then I really don't understand, and this gets to the question of what are the me- what is the mechanism that explains how these various groups influence the president? You were just talking about short-term policy interests. I don't see how Biden's decision to really aggressively engage Russia by helping Ukraine and providing all sorts of other assistance it seems obviously not to be in his short-term political interest. It seems that it's foreseeably uh, harming the international economy, sparking inflation, further exacerbating supply chain problems, and the like. So, can you? So, given all that, that's a stew of uh, of things. How does your theory explain or account for the U.S. response to the invasion of Ukraine? Uh, so yeah, the U. I mean, the U.S. response is interesting. I think one of the best sort of the best things that can be said for the uh, you know, short term, you know, a public choice uh, under you know short term political public choice understanding of the uh, uh, Russia, uh, the U.S. policy towards Russia and Ukraine is that the sanctions against Russia actually turned out to be tougher than uh, what was promised. So it was like you know up for debate whether SWIFT would be on this table, something like an oil you know embargo which the EU is doing. I mean, this is not just the U.S. This is its allies in Europe too. 
too. But like, you know, you want the point of the sanctions, if it's to deter, you you say at least, you know, maybe you exaggerate what you're going to do. You don't downplay what you're going to do. So the US and Europe actually, you know, they surprised everyone by coming out tougher than people expected. And, you know, that that's that's just completely illogical from a, from a strategic perspective. Much tougher. I mean, especially the central bank stuff. Yeah, exactly. And then and the, exactly weapon. You know, the weapons provided uh, to. I mean, some of it was like you know maybe the you know maybe the Ukrainians you know just fought so well, you know fought so well that it changed the political direction. But I think it, the stuff came very very quickly before we even knew you know exactly which way the war was gonna was gonna go. So if if, if the Russians did actually just you know roll the Ukrainians and take the country, it's hard you know took took Kiev. It's it's you know it's interesting to wonder what you know what the response would have been there because we'd amplified it. Uh, uh, so much, but um, uh, anyways, yeah. So, uh, so you know, I think, I think this, I think this, this sort of the the pre negotiation, particularly if you look at those few months before the invasion of uh, Ukraine, I think it says a lot about you know. I think it's a theory. I think has a lot to a uh, lot to contribute to understanding what was uh, going on as far as Biden uh, and the administration's current policy. I'm not sure I read the politics in the exact same way. So you can look, there's a, you know, an argument you can make that says Americans care more about the economy than they do about foreign policy. That's true. Um, And if you put those things head to head, people will uh, choose the economy. At the same time, there is such a thing as sort of the tone of the coverage and how the presidency is understood in a, you know, in a more sort of holistic sense. So I, you know, I thought that the Biden smart move was to pull out of Afghanistan politically, because people don't care about Afghanistan. But as soon as he pulled out of Afghanistan, I mean, the Afghanistan became the headlines and suddenly, you know, the country, you know, the war we'd forgotten about for 15 years uh, became the became the main story. Um, and his, you know, polling, his polling went down. I still think it was probably the right decision because it's, it's a short term thing. And, you know, it's better, I guess, to, it's better to rip the bandaid off than continue the war, which might have been the only other option to take casualties, you know, indefinitely into the future. So maybe it was still the right decision. But you could see how sort of what something that you know, just sort of at a naive look. When you take a naive look at it, you know, you see, you sort of wonder how these things play out, and sort of the tone of the media coverage and the tone of you know the experts, the people who are on CNN and MSNBC and Fox News. I mean, they tend to be very hawkish people, often part of this military uh, military industrial complex that we've been talking about. Ex generals who are now working for uh, um, some weapons manufacturer. So you know, if if Biden just you know tries to do the best thing for the eco- American economy in the short term, he's good because he wants to uh, do well in the middle terms of potentially win re-election. Yeah, he just, I mean, he just says, you know, Russia, you know, do whatever you want. We're not going to sanction you. We're going to have trade. We're just going to get the grain out. We're going to figure out how to do this. He does that though. I mean, he'll get, he'll get killed in the media. I mean, the coverage will be become, you know, Russia starts uh, making progress on the battlefield. Russia's economy is not even being hurt. It's not even being punished for this evil act of aggression. I think that becomes the, you know, the biggest story in the country. And I think, you know, that, that potentially hurts him politically. The Republicans are not going to give him credit for saving the economy and stuff. You know, the Republicans who now say, focus on America, you know, America first, don't focus on Ukraine. If Biden does that and, you know, Russia starts taking parts of Ukraine and the economy does get better, they're not going to thank him. They're going to, they're going to attack him over Ukraine. Uh, so I, I think, you know, I, I think he is, uh, you know, there's at least an argument to be made that this is what he should be doing politically. Maybe it's what he should be doing politically in the counterfact. I mean, what you're saying is counterfactually, he would have received lots of political heat if he had not engaged as aggressively as he did. But it just seems to me, maybe I'm wrong about this, that the economic consequences are going to hurt him a lot, especially with the upcoming elections, more than a foreign policy, uh, alleged foreign policy weakness would. But you you mentioned Afghanistan and the withdrawal, and that one, I have to say, of all the recent foreign policy events, strikes me as the hardest, you might agree with this, the hardest to square with your theory. It's not something 
Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned that two prior presidents had come into office, and indeed, Obama and Trump had both run on trying to shrink the war. And they came in and they were greeted by, and they both tried and they both met resistance from the foreign policy establishment, and they both kind of backed down from their initial efforts. But Biden did it, and he did it, and the DOD didn't want him to do it, and certainly the weapons manufacturers didn't want him to do it, and our allies didn't want him to do it, and yet he did it. So, I mean, I guess, so what is, how do you square this? Is it that your theory explains a lot of stuff, but ultimately the president, uh, if he wants to take the heat, can overcome these interests? I mean, how, how do you square that event with your account of U.S. foreign policy? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. As you said, I mean, it's not a deterministic formula that you're going to understand what happens in uh, every potential foreign policy uh, decision, only that there's a tendency. So there was a tendency among concentrated interests to want to keep the Af- Afghanistan war going. They, you know, they kept the, the war, you know, the war kept going during the Bush administration. They overcame the resistance from two administrations, particularly Trump, I mean, who really, really wanted to get out of Afghanistan, if you read the journalistic accounts and the memoirs of, uh, of what happened. And then eventually, you know, they, they there was a president who, uh, you know, at some point you just you just have to understand, you know, there, there, there's history. There, there's something debate specific where something unusual happened, um, you know, because of some constellation of circumstances. So in this case, it was the fact that Biden, basically since the uh, since he was the vice president under Obama, he was the most resistant to taking a more hawkish approach to Afghanistan. Um, Biden overruled him. I think Biden, you know, the uh, after uh, Obama surge in Afghanistan, everything got worse. The U.S. started taking more casual. Casualties, more, you know, territory fell out of the government's hand into the hands of the Taliban. I think Biden felt like he was vindicated by history. I mean, I think he thinks that if they, you know, people would have listened to him, um, we would have avoided a lot of mess in Afghanistan. And you know, I think you know, he, so he comes, so he comes into office, and you know, I, I think there, you know, he he wants to get out, and and so it's it's also, I mean, often these are very tough political decisions because, again, like we said, I mean, he took it's like the Biden administration. Should he, you know, does he take the economic hit? with the Russia-Ukraine situation, or does he uh, try to do whatever's best for economy and take the criticism that he's soft on Russia and letting Putin win, which is also bad politics? I think Biden was also, you know, it's not, it's not an easy political decision because it, the pulling out of Afghanistan hurt. But, you know, the, the reason the U.S. casualties had gone so low in Afghanistan was because we had an agreement with the Taliban. So what was the alternative to leaving Afghanistan? The alternative might be reneging on the deal that Trump had and Trump could come back in 2024 and say, I had this deal. And then going back to taking casualties in Afghanistan, uh, this like slow burn, right? That this sort of pointless war that, that extends forever, that the Taliban, you know, all the momentum had been with the Taliban for, you know, really like pretty much a decade. And so that, you know, that's not an easy decision too. It's a short-term pain versus uh, long-term pain. And I think, you know, I think he probably made, actually made the right decision uh, in the end because he's looking, you know, I think the you take the short-term pain over the long-term pain, particularly when you're early in the administration and you're far away from a midterm. I mean, does, does it, does the, you know, the next in November, is Afghanistan going to matter? Uh, no, I, you know, it's going to be inflation. Other events have happened. It's going to be, you know, what are the tone about the Russia and Ukraine coverage? It might be, you know, uh, Roe v. Wade or something like that. Uh, but yeah, I think you do it, you do it early in your administration or you, when you, you know, it does give you a framework. So when they might do these things, so maybe very early in your administration, you go against sort of the, uh, uh, you know, when you're furthest away from election, you go against the um, concentrated interest, or maybe at the, in your second term at the end of it, uh, administration. Uh, so this is when you got the JCPOA. Remember the, what Obama criticized for telling uh, Dmitry Medved, you know, we're going to have more, uh, uh, we're going to have more room to work with you guys, Russians, after the 
election. Uh, so, you know, you, you do you do have a you do have a role for ideology. You do have a role for sort of, you know, the idiosyncrasies and the beliefs of uh, and the you know ideological commitments of presidents. And, you know, the public choice framework, I think, gives you an understanding of when those things will be more or less important. So I want to come back to something that we were discussing earlier, Mir Sharma and Walt. It may surprise you that when I was reading your book, I kept thinking about their work and and all the points of connection and agreement in their work, but in an odd way. And you alluded to this. I just want to flesh it out. So they're both famous realists. And I think it's fair to say they explain, they have a positive or descriptive account of, of international behaviors based on primarily, I think, international structure, maybe less than some from which they derive national interests. And and so they make certain predictions and certain accounts, and it's also a basis for them to have normative critiques. And whether their descriptive and normative claims can be squared, we can talk about that. But what I really want to point out is their theories together, their, their critiques of U.S. foreign policy are similar to yours. Steve Walt wrote a whole book about the blob and its and its pernicious influence on U.S. foreign policy and U.S. foreign policy interests, which is two of your three triads, the national security bureaucracy and the, well, the, the national security bureaucracy, the weapons manufacturers, the elite press. I think that's what the basic uh, constitutive parts of the so-called blob that uh, supposedly dominates U.S. foreign policy. So Steve critiqued U.S. foreign policy using that set of interests. Mearsheimer's essay in foreign affairs was almost exactly, said almost exactly the same thing you did in your book, which is that uh, he was talking about China and how the United States made a huge mistake in engaging China economically and allow it to rise into this huge power that now it has to deal with. And he said that was just, just a mistake from the realist perspective and that basically those decisions didn't serve U.S. foreign policy interests. And he explained it in terms of basically uh, a special interest group, which is kind of what you do. And then, as you mentioned, the Israel lobby book by both Mearsheimer and Walt is basically an account of a foreign government uh, having undue influence on U.S. foreign policy. So what what do you, I mean, first of all, am I right? Are these connections real? And what do you make of them? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one thing I, you know, one thing I, I want to do in the book is not just sort of present my theory of American foreign policy. It's to sort of, you know, try to clarify what other people are doing, you know, with when they're talking about American foreign policy. You know, Mersheimer and Walt, I think you're right. I mean, what my sort of one of my, you know, people who've influenced me, I took classes with him. I took a class with him at a University of Chicago when I was in law school. I took a graduate course with John Mersheimer. They point, you know, people like this point out a lot of uh, anomalies and, and and strange things in American foreign policy, things that are destructive and, uh, you know, not not sensical from, sensible from like any kind of uh, rational perspective in the sense of, you know, actually working towards achieving national goals. And so they're completely right about that. But then they, you know, the, the realist theories are supposed to be, you know, they're supposed to be, dis- they're supposed to be descriptive um, theories. And, you know, it, it comes to a point where you, you say, okay, you're, you see, you have this descriptive theory and then all, you, you know, you, you spend so much time criticizing the world for not working in accordance with these descriptive theories. It's like, at what point do you think, okay, the theory is not actually itself very useful. So I think, you know, Mersheimer in particular, um, you know, I, like I said, I, I like his, I like his uh, work and you know, he's been big influence on me, but he's also, I think the, the sort of the, you know, I think one, one difference between me and him is I think that his, um, you know, his understanding um, is, you know, is based on things like material interest and, uh, and uh, just power. And so, you know, Mersheimer, uh, you know, doesn't think, for example, 
you know, he wouldn't think that the fact that China is a non-democracy has any effect on sort of either their or much effect either on their foreign policy or how Americans perceive them. Now, you know, it's hard to say you know, what, whether China's foreign policy would be different or how it would be different. But the idea of just somebody who knows American politics, that idea that our public opinion and sort of how American elites see China wouldn't make it, you know, wouldn't be any different if, say, China had a government that just behaved, you know, uh, internally had the exact same politics of like South Korea or Japan. You know, that's that's just, you know, contradicts everything that I think we know about American politics. So this led Mersheimer at the, the collapse of, you know, after the collapse of the Soviet Union to predict that, you know, Germany, reunited Germany would see be seen as a threat by the rest of uh, Europe. You know, he predicted, uh, you know, all you know, these, uh, these uh, sort of uh, new, co- new conflicts. Uh, um, based on, you know, the fall of the Soviet Union. And no, it ended up being basically, you know, Russia. It still ended up being Russia and Germany and France. You know, they integrated and were happy to join the EU and give up their sovereignty with, you know, very, very little friction in a grand historical sense. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I do think Mersheimer, you know, has good trenchant critiques of American foreign policy. Um, but there's such good critiques that, you know, it's sort of, <laughs> it's, it sort of calls the entire underlying theory into question. Yeah. So let me ask you one final question, and and that is this. So you were saying earlier, I think in response to my question about the Afghanistan pullout, that your theory doesn't explain everything. There, are, you mentioned all sorts of other factors that influence Biden. You know, I think that some of the three factors that you focus on do explain a lot of U.S. foreign policy, especially the tight connection between the the defense contractors and the U.S. national security establishment in the government. I think that does it is a has to be. And I would also add their connection to the congressional defense committees. That has to be a large explanatory variable for lots of U.S. military-related foreign policy stuff. But I, I came away from your book thinking, asking, you know, what is the point of this theorizing? And I've done this myself in the international law context, trying to give a kind of reductive and elegant explanation for international law behaviors. The older I get, the less I think this is really a fruitful thing to be doing. So I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, what do you think? And, and I think it's all too reductive and, and this stuff is too complicated. U.S. foreign policy is too complicated. There are too many contingent factors. There are too many unpredictable factors. So do you agree with that or not? And But the real question is, what is the point? What is the aim of this theorizing? Either a lot of it seems to me on the descriptive front to really be hidden normative theorizing. That the descriptive claims are the claims that, the, that people think explain the world, but they really want the world to be a certain way. So that's a that's not necessarily a coherent set of thoughts. But the big picture question is, what is the point? What is the aim of international relations theory, and what do you think it should be? Yeah, that's. I mean, that's that's actually a great question. I mean, I, I think we come at this from a similar perspective. I'm not a big political theory kind of kind of guy. You know, I, one of the reasons you know I sort of grew disillusioned with academia and went into uh, uh, doing other things, more pub, more public work, is you know I thought that a lot of this theorizing actually wasn't very useful, and there were actually interesting practical questions we should be talking about, and that's the you know that's the the better way to spend one's time if one is going to be a, a thinker or, or a writer. Uh, so yeah, I agree. You know, I agree with your general or, orientation uh, there. You know, and, and so what, what I'm, you know, I think we do need something resembling a theory that, to understand these things. So, I mean, you have an implicit understanding of what drives American foreign policy. So, if you, ha- you know, if you have the grand grand uh, strategy model in your head, you're going to be going back looking at Iraq, Afghanistan. You know, assuming like, you know, assuming most people can't go do you know deep historical dives into each foreign policy event. I mean, you sort of need a framework to just understand 
understand like, okay, should we have expected some plan like that would explain both the invade, you know, would explain Afghanistan and the, the decision to stay in Afghanistan and the invasion of Iraq and the post, uh, the post Saddam occupation of Iraq? Like, is there, and does this somehow fit with like what the U S was thinking about China and Russia at the time? Like, do you go in like looking for evidence that that's going to be consistent with that? Or do you think, do you approach it like the way we approach um, domestic politics where it's like, okay, there's politicians, uh, there's uh, concentrated interest, there's, um, there's inertia in policy. And let's just, let's just sort of explain it there and not expect anything uh, grander, you know, no pun intended, you know, so to, so to speak, uh, no no grand strategy. And so I, you know, I think we have to make a choice here. And I think we, uh, you know, I think what I'm doing is I'm pushing back which I think the, I think the grand strategy is an implicit, you know, is in a um, usually implicit theory of how we understand foreign policy. And I, I think I want something closer to what you want. I, I want less theorizing. I mean, the things that I'm saying are not revolutionary. Oh, I have this great explanation that's going to, you know, change. Every, I could take a few variables and expect, you know, tell you what foreign policy is going to be. It's like, no, you know, there's the, we should understand it the way we understand the rest of politics. The concentrated interests, you know, are, are a huge factor. You know, politicians care about, you know, politics and their approval ratings winning elections. You know, there's, the, there's no, uh, there's no groundbreaking discovery there either. And I think I'm trying to bring sort of uh, our understanding of international relations, foreign policy, you know, down to earth and public choice theory is just a way to do that and away from that theorizing. So I, th- I think we're, we're actually in a quite a bit of agreement here. And I think we should stop. Richard, thanks very much. I enjoyed your book. <laughs> Thank you, Jack. I appreciate it. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th called The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. You can also buy Lawfare swag at thelawfarestore.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.